Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Can you welcome Naomi? Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Jesus, Naomi, it's all gone wild. Oh my God, Tim, like really has, uh, like all hell has truly broken loose in Irish politics. So if you haven't, if you're not aware, anyone who's just tuning in, if you've been under a rock or anything, um, Irish politics has just been shaken by a massive scandal over the last couple of days. And the sheer scale of the public anger that it's brought up really is calling into question how long the Irish government is going to last. And it's only weeks since it's been formed. Yeah, right. I mean, it has been an unbelievably hectic 48 hours, really, for Irish politics. Um, there has been a controversy that was almost immediately dubbed Golfgate. It's it's time that we start updating our uh, scandal vocabulary, I think, yeah. Naomi, but this one's been called Golfgate. And it has deeply shaken public faith in the recently installed government, like you said, and its ability to lead the country out of the current pandemic. So we're going to discuss the scandal, what happened exactly, also the wider context of what this means at this moment in Irish politics, and how the restrictions to curb the deadly coronavirus play into it all. Now we'll also be examining one often overlooked aspect of this year's continued travel restrictions, Of all OECD countries, Ireland has the largest percentage of its population living outside the state. So how exactly might things change now that most travel has largely ground to a halt? Right. And for a country that's always relied on emigration as like a pressure valve in times of hardship, what's going to happen now that we're facing into a possibly unprecedented economic recession when young people largely can't leave the country? Given the big youth vote that drove the unprecedented result of the last election, with Sinn Féin getting the most votes, what might be the political consequences of that? Mm. Now, basically, the country is in a whole new set of uncharted waters right now. And the circumstances here are so unusual, they're so unfamiliar, that it feels almost as if Ireland is undergoing some kind of grand political experiment. The government is reportedly in a total panic at the extent of public anger. And even before the scandal broke, that we'll describe in a minute, um, it was more or less, that government was more or less staggering from crisis to crisis in in its first few weeks. Uh, So, Naomi, let's start by explaining what exactly happened. Uh, What's all this Golfgate business about and why is it so important? Okay, so the story broke on Thursday night, and actually the journalist who broke it was recently a guest on this very podcast, mm-hmm. Aoife Grace Moore of the Irish Examiner. She featured in our Irish government Q&A live stream in June. So Aoife and her colleague Paul Hosford revealed on Thursday that 81 people had attended a dinner in a hotel in Clifton in County Galway the previous evening. And when you take into account who these people were and what had been announced the day before the event, this dinner takes on quite a new light. Yeah, so you're probably asking yourself, how does this fit into social distancing rules? So Mm. 81 people in an indoor space would raise eyebrows, I think, for everybody. And you'd be right. Mm. On the day that this event took place, the rules that were in force in Ireland prohibited the holding of any indoor event for more than 50 people 
for cultural, entertainment, recreational, sporting, social, community or educational reasons outside of home. Um, so on the face of it, that seems to be in contravent- contravention of those rules. And what's more, the day before this event was held, the government had announced that it, w- it was introducing even stricter rules. Uh, it declared that indoor events were now banned for any groups larger than six people with the only exceptions being for weddings and some religious ceremonies that were still limited to a 50-person maximum. So all that taken into account, the guest list at this particular dinner of 81 people in Clifton is pretty hard to digest. That's the heart of the scandal. This event was an anniversary dinner for the Oireachtas Golf Society, so the Oireachtas is in the Irish Parliament. So that means, in attendance, it was a long list of the great and the good. There was Ireland's EU Commissioner, Phil Hogan, the Galway TD, Noel Grealish, Senator Jerry Buttimer, Senator John Crummings, Senator Paul Daly, Senator Niall Blaney, the former Fine Gael Senator, Coach Keane, the Moroccan Ambassador, a bit randomly, former uh, Labour Party Senator Lorraine Higgins, the former Fine Gael Senator and TD for Sligo Leitrim, Jerry Reynolds, Former Fine Gael Senator Imelda Henry, the Circuit Court Judge and a former Workers' Party Party TD, Pac McCartan. And there are two me- names that are particularly galling. The former Attorney General Seamus Wolfe, who's now a judge, but who was actually one of the people who drew up the very COVID restrictions he's now accused of being part of breaking. And a sitting minister in government, the Minister for Agriculture, Derek Leary. Right, so I mean, that list is just <laughs> eye-popping. I just, like, nobody can really get over this. It's like um, it's like an episode of Veep or something. Minister Kaliri's attendance at this dinner has provoked some of the greatest ire uh, among the public right now. Uh, he was actually one of the people who had been presenting the government's new stricter restrictions on events on TV and on radio and in media. Uh, take a listen to him here, for instance, on the national broadcaster RTE, and he's calling for responsibility just about 24 hours before he himself attended this gala golf dinner with 80 people in tow. Uh, bars and restaurants, the majority of them, 95% of them, have shown huge responsibility uh, since they reopened. Um, and we are restricting uh, further some of the ways of uh, them doing business in terms of numbers, in terms of uh, people from households at tables and restaurants. So there are restrictions. Um, so they have shown responsibility, bar the minority. But once again, Sharon, it comes down to each of our own personal responsibility and each of our own personal choices in this. Um, we all need to reduce our networks, regardless of what age we are. The contact tracing has shown that the amount of people that people are in touch with is growing larger and larger every week. So let's get it clear here what this scene in Clifton represents. We have all these very senior figures, as we've heard, from a diverse spectrum of Irish politics, who in large part are supposed to have been protecting us, basically, from the spread of this virus. Um, And here they are, pretty much openly flouting the very restrictions that they themselves created, endorsed and promoted. And this was only one day after those restrictions were tightened for the rest of the population, or technically for the whole population. Um, I'm guessing, Naomi, that this news was not warmly received by the public. Uh, How would you describe the general reaction? Absolute fury. (laughs) And to understand why that fury is so deep-seated, you have to remember that restrictions on gatherings have profoundly affected people's lives in Ireland since the beginning of the year. Yeah, right. I mean, honestly, Naomi, I can feel the fury, like, 
in us at the moment. <laughs> I'm furious about this. Yeah. Um, because, of course, you know, so, so, um, these restrictions on gatherings, they've affected people's lives in these really profound ways. Um, you know, nobody uh, has escaped this. Uh, people have not been able to attend the funerals of their own loved ones. Uh, countless weddings have been cancelled. You know, children have gone without birthday parties. Elderly people are not seeing their, haven't seen their children or their grandchildren. Um, you know, the sick and the vulnerable have been left in crushing isolation sometimes. Um, Immigrants have been more or less stranded overseas, and of course, countless pubs and restaurants and all kinds of places are either already closing or facing serious, serious hardship. And all of this has been in the name of following the regulations and keeping each other safe and healthy. Yeah, it was the whole idea was we're all in this together. And there was huge public compliance with this in the name of beating the disease. And that Mm. means that there can't be a family in Ireland who hasn't sacrificed or suffered due to the COVID-19 restrictions, you know, and almost, you know, have been, they were, they were happy to do so, uh, you know, in the name of the greater good. Like people I know whose entire livelihoods are based on events have no income, you know, Mm. there are families, husbands, wives and children who have been separated from each other since February, basically after the story broke all day on social media and national radio in Ireland, there was just an outpouring of members of the public just like sharing their experiences of, you know, having to bury their loved ones without ceremony with just a handful of people around a grave who can't even hug each other. Like people dying alone in hospital, watching funerals over webcam, which is a horrible experience that I think many of us have experienced in recent months. Um, mm. People struggling to, make, of course, to make ends meet amid all of this. And crucially, like you say, Tim, the majority of people have been obeying and supporting these rules, even calling for stricter ones, despite the personal sacrifices that they represent in the name of the common good. And in a Mm. telling twist, the two journalists who actually broke the story, Aoife and Paul, they themselves have had to cancel their weddings due to the restrictions. Both of them were due to get married this summer and both of them had to call it off. Um, Now, all this considered, there are multiple aspects of this Clifton dinner that have left a really bad taste uh, in people's mouths. Uh, Firstly, you know, this couldn't be less quote-unquote essential as an event. Like, it's a golf society meeting. Like, this is not a funeral. Um, This is not something that couldn't have waited or even that needed to take place at all. Um, You know, even worse, the idea of society dinners or fundraisers or what have you, you know, uh, uh, things of that type that bring together lots of influential people, you know, like in in a private do, uh, those kind of things have a really bad reputation in Ireland. Uh, In the past, that kind of event was regularly linked with corruption and uh, an old boys club mentality. Uh, So it is not a good look at all for the current government. But most of all, Naomi, this is a case of people feeling that politicians in Ireland simply consider themselves above the law, above the rules, uh, exempt from the rules because they're somehow more important. And the reaction, you know, to all that has just been fierce. Oh, like the optics of it are just terrible. So like all day on WhatsApp groups um, that I'm in, you know, friends and family were sharing a video that a member of the public seems to have taken at the hotel. So someone just videoed the table plans, which seem to have been on display outside the dinner. And of course, there's a list of names there, you know, Senator so-and-so and TD so-and-so. Um, all these tables that the, the people were sitting at. And the table plan presentation it's under the head, like it's under the title Oroctus Golf Society, Oroctus in, as in Parliament. And it's also like on embossed paper. So bo- like paper that has a harp 
embossed in the mm. background. Like the harp symbol, that means like something official. It, it's what like ministries use and the government use on like official paper and stuff. So it, it looks like this is an official like government function or something, you know, like it, it just looks like the the people in charge, you know. Um, so the optics are just terrible. And this is just all over WhatsApp. Um, and I've I've never seen a political story take off so dramatically among like everyone I know immediately, you know. So obviously, um, first of all, Minister Derek Leary tried to present it like he was there because th- th- this dinner was apparently sort of in in memory of a deceased member. So he was like, oh, I was asked to pay tribute, you know, to someone uh, who I respected and so on. And but pe- he apologized like and said that, and people were like, yeah, but you know, I I. Like we had to bury our parents, you know, and, and no one could come. You know, this kind of thing. Like mm. it, he was almost sort of likening it to a funeral. And that was just a terrible move because of all the people who have actually missed funerals. It meant that like this apology was totally ineffective. And within hours, he had to kind of backtrack and resign as agriculture minister. Um, next were the senators. The senators uh, apologized. Their their whip was removed, which means they've basically been kicked out of their party in the Shannon. Right. Okay. Uh, this is something actually I'd, I'd love to get clear. So, like, I understand that um, these people, even if they're kicked out of their party, uh, they will retain their jobs in Parliament uh, as public representatives. So, like, what is? I mean, have they really faced any like? actual consequences for that's this. the thing so like they will try it's a kind of like a kind of political theater where they they try to resign something or demonstrate kind some kind of sacrifice some kind of uh, acknowledgement of the public anger by stepping back from something um, mm. but they remain you know in their salaried jobs so Derek Leary isn't a minister anymore he's not in cabinet but he's still a TD and I think he probably hopes that he can you know b- maybe just be trundle along as a as a TD for another few years and before long being government again. And no doubt he, he he hopes that. Um the same with the senators. Like they're still they're still they're still senators. They're still in the Shannon. Uh, nobody's like actually leaving their job here, their main job. They're remaining in their jobs. And you have to ask, like, I get the sense that some of the public are just not happy with that. And you heard mm. that on radio. Like I Dr. Gabriel Scali, the doctor, was calling for, like, for, like, if these people are un- unable to perform this public role, they should find another profession. You know, they should actually mm. leave public life and not yeah. just mm. wait um, and, and hope it blows over and then kind of come back again in the, in a few years and, and hold the same positions again. So, so there's there seems to be like a cognitive dissonance here between a public that's fed up of this kind of cynicism and is just really not standing for it anymore um, and a political establishment who only seem to know how to operate within that cynical framework. That's it. It's like they can't help themselves. It's, <laughs> you know? Um, and of course, a lot of the focus now is on one of the most senior figures involved, um, who's the EU commissioner, Phil Hogan, himself a former minister who actually, you know, he, he already got himself in trouble a number of times in Irish politics before going over to Brussels. But he hasn't stepped back from anything. He basically issued an explanation without an apology in which he said it was he had attended on the understanding that the rules would be followed and that the hotel and hotel federation had said, you know, it was within the rules or whatever. And that's the line that the EU commission is taking as well. Um, wow. But, you know, there's ongoing calls for his resignation. 
Gardaí have launched an investigation. The police have launched an investigation into this event because under the rules in place at the time, anybody who was involved in organising event, an event for over 50 people, could, in theory, face a fine of €2,500 and even six months in prison. Wow, all right. Yeah, OK, well, it'll be very interesting to see what the, what the Gardaí do with that. I mean, I think we'll all be surprised if anything comes of it, um, which is, which is uh, sad in itself. Um, but, I mean... I've been trying, over the last two days, I've been trying to put myself in the shoes of just, you know, one of those guests who, like, got an invitation to this to this event. And I suppose it pretty much boils down to two possibilities. So, you know, A, you know, you could be someone who gets an invitation to this and you just genuinely didn't realise that you were breaking the rules. After all, it has that harp embossed upon it, you know, and um, there's all these very important people there, so you might just second-guess yourself. Norm Under normal circumstances, that might constitute some kind of defence. But, like, the fact that so many people at this event were directly responsible for creating and or promoting those rules kind of undermines that whole that whole idea. Um, and even the others, actually, when you really come down to it, if you even if you show up at the door and you see you see this big room full of people, after months and months and months of receiving public information about what we can and can't do, it would be amply clear that this was uh, breaking um, breaking those rules. Um, so we're left then with possibility B. Um, that, you know, the people at this event knew what they were doing, um, but they thought that they could get away with it. So, you know, how on earth, in, in a big hotel, in a small town, in a small country, how do you think that might have been feasible, that they thought they could just do this with impunity? So, well, according to the reporting, it seems that the 81 guests were divided into two areas that were separated by a partition. And this partition mm. was open so that staff could go through it and serve both groups. Um, so, in other words, a single gathering, ga- gathering could sort of masquerade as two separate groups of less than mm. 50 people who just happened to be quite close together. Um, but it seems, you know, speeches were given to both groups and the staff were coming back and, and, and forward. So, like, you know, anyone can see, really, that this kind of, like, jiggery-pokery, this was never understood <laughs> to be an acceptable workaround to the 50-person limit. And by the way, usually that 50 person limit is interpreted to include staff as well as guests. Um, And according to reporting by my colleagues at the Irish Times, a witness who was staying at the hotel reported seeing the group greeting each other with handshakes, no one wearing masks and no one distancing. Jesus Christ, uh, this is actually uh, unbelievable. I think actually that last detail is... It's kind of chilling, actually, because if that is the case, if there were people in that group shaking hands and not wearing masks uh, in there um, in, in an event that already contravened uh, guidelines, you know, that calls into question whether these people who are supposed to be leading our national health strategy even believe in what they're preaching um, or what they're promoting to contain the virus. Um, or it, it calls into question whether they think that they themselves might somehow be immune because they're so important. So, Naomi, I mean... This would be a scandal at the best of times, but one of the reasons that it's getting so much attention is the context in which this is all happening. So maybe it's time that we should uh, break that context down a bit. Right. So, of course, we had a general election back at the start of the year, but this government was only formed on June 27. And that's because the election returned a very fragmented result. You might remember our live episode from the RDS Kent Centre in Dublin. On the day, the the big story was the huge rise in support for the left-wing nationalist party Sinn Féin, which got the biggest number of votes of all parties for the first time ever, uh, driven particularly by support among the young. Right, yeah. But famously, as you'll remember, 
remember that result kind of caught Sinn Féin off guard uh, because even though they had attained a significant voting majority, they hadn't actually run enough candidates to form a government majority. Uh, so the other traditional parties quickly went into negotiations with each other to form an alternative. Yeah, so Sinn Féin, you know, tried to form a coalition of the left, but there just weren't enough people to do it. There weren't enough. And so after trying out various sort of combinations, what happened in the end is that Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Greens were the ones who were able to agree to form a coalition with the seats in Parliament required. Yeah, it's all very complicated and I know it probably sounds weird to people who aren't um, uh, acquainted with the Irish political system, but it it was all perfectly democratic. Um, Sinn Féin simply just hadn't run enough candidates and they suffered the consequences of that. And also, like, it's really important in coalition systems that other people are willing to go into government with you and people weren't willing to go into government with Sinn Féin and that's the result of it as well. Right, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael technically came out well from this, but at the same time, the whole situation, the whole scenario, just it wasn't a good look for them. Um, lots of people, lots of voters had seen the Sinn Féin vote primarily as a vote against the traditional parties, a kind of protest vote, and also as a way to break the two-party dominance uh, of the country that has more or less reigned since independence. You know, many people still see that two-party system, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, um, as responsible for maintaining a certain kind of insouciance um, among the political class. The fact that these two parties were now re-entering government, government uh, even though they had effectively lost the popular vote, you know, that was some, uh, something of a poison chalice for them. There was always a risk that this particular arrangement could further fuel disillusionment in politics because it's really, really easy to frame this government as the same old crowd you know, um, Mm. who have ignored the unhappiness that was expressed at the last election. Um, And this is a time of disillusionment in politics. It's a time when there is a lot of that anger and disillusionment around. Um, Fianna Fáil is, you know, it's a shadow of the former political behemoth that it once was. Um, They had a poor election. They're still blamed for the financial disaster of the property crash and banking crisis. They're still associated with the kind of the grift and the greed and like the kind of sleaze of the Celtic tiger years. And Fine Gael were punished in the election too for for failing to address the housing crisis and overseeing a massive increase in inequality between the young and old, like with young people just unable really to start their lives. Nevertheless, the two are in government again. You know, it's, it's easy to see why people would, be disillusioned to see that yeah absolutely and like it, it, to make matters worse the whole theme the whole media theme anyway of the recent general election was about change and that Sinn Féin vote was largely seen as this big change vote you know very much coming hot in the heels of the last two referendums uh, so not only did the public not receive this kind of change that they were clearly asking for they got Two old establishment figures for the price of one. (laughs) Um, At the moment, we're in a system of rotating Taoiseach. Micheál Martin, leader of Fianna Fáil, will be Taoiseach for two years. And Leo Varadkar, leader of Fine Gael, will take over after that for the next two years. Yeah, and in the meantime, they're each other's deputies. Um, And of course, Leo Varadkar and Micheál Martin were the two big names at the top of the last government as well. Um, So like just the way it comes across. Is like, is like the same politicians just doing a deal to hold on to power and ignore the mm. electorate. But leaving that base perception aside, um, a government was formed on June 27th, finally. It took forever. Um, so what's been going on since then? It's actually been one shambles after another. There's something kind of tragic about it because Micheál Martin, 
um, the leader of Fianna Fáil has been named as a potential future Taoiseach for like a really long time. You know, a very long time he's been around and kind of talked about as potential new Taoiseach. And he's clearly wanted it for a very long time. And the day when he was uh, made Taoiseach, you could see his face was just like lit up with happiness. You know, he'd Mm. achieved it. And it's like a nightmare. It's like he finally achieved his dream and it's awful. Like he's every day that the government goes on, it seems to be a new scandal, a new crisis. He, he's barely had a good day in government. Okay, well, why don't you walk us through a few of these um, of these bad days for me, Martin? <laughs> I can't even remember all of them. But the, the first one was this spectacle of members of his own party who were moaning and griping and upset publicly because they didn't get ministerial, ministerial appointments that they thought they deserved. And Derek Leary was oh, one God. of those, actually. Um, you know, they 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 were all you know. It's we've been loyal to the party and we've been working very hard and we haven't been recognised with like a ministerial position of one kind or another. And they were openly griping about it. It looked awful. It looked awful. Yeah. I just don't know how they think that's a good idea to like publicly air these gripes. Anyway, they did. Um, it's just this entitlement. I don't know. Then no sooner had that happened, but the agriculture minister that he had appointed, uh, the first one, Barry Cowan had to be sacked over a drink driving incident that he hasn't oh hadn't disclosed and you know he didn't disclose it, the information and um, like people I, I i think people weren't expecting Fianna Fáil to go so Fianna Fáil so quickly like <laughs> this kind of scandal um and now the new agriculture minister who was appointed to replace the first one has in turn had to resign after only a few weeks on the job after yet another scandal so, like, that's two agriculture ministers gone uh, within within weeks. And now the Taoiseach, Micheál Martin, says he's going to be the agriculture minister for now. Because, I, like, I don't know if they've run out of people to to, to appoint or, I don't know. Oh, my Does it just look too I mean, bad like, to go on to agriculture minister number three? Like, we're laughing because it is, it's so comically tragic. But this is really serious. Like, they're really making a mess of this. It is. And it's such a bad time. Like, because was exactly at the moment when people were sort of starting to be like, okay, when can we see some good news about this virus? And when can maybe things get back to a bit more normal? And amid all of this sort of debacles that were happening in government, they kind of lost control of the good narrative that the government had enjoyed until then, which was that, you know, they had a handle on the pandemic, more or less. Like people, there was there was general public support for the measures high level of compliance um and and that was so important and this this kind of scandal just sort of eroded the sense of common purpose and good feeling around that so there started to be complaints that the coronavirus uh, rules were unclear the the communication of the coronavirus rules started to get blurred because there was disagreements about aspects of it how they were communicated um things that hadn't been thought of the big question that everyone's sort of waiting on is like, how are the schools going to reopen in, in the autumn? Because um, Michal Martin, who himself is actually a former teach- teacher, had said everything we're doing, we're doing so that the schools can reopen. So the stakes are really, really high, but there's still a lot, a lack of clarity about how that's going to be achieved. So like, if you wanted a recipe for fueling disillusionment in politics, I suppose this is it. It comes at such a bad time. Like at this moment, a lot of bad actors are stalking the public debate 
looking for people who were feeling disillusionment, you know, mm. to manipulate with conspiracy theories and things and, and, you know, erode people's faith in, in democracy, in democratic politics. Like the far right conspiracy theorists, anti-immigration nationalists, they were they've already been noticeably active and trying to exploit the pandemic. Like they're all over mm. my Facebook and Twitter. Um, and they're what they claim is that the political elite are all corrupt. It's, it's one rule for them. It's another for the ordinary people. And, you know, they kind of undermine the coronavirus rules. And it's like the politicians have made their argument for them oh with this God. ridiculous golf dinner. Like, yeah. and like as you said, Tim, like the very nature of it, like the very golf dinner nature of it. Like golf dinner is it's sort of a byword for old boys club. Like when I was growing up um, in my town, in the local golf club, women were actually banned from entry apart from on Tuesdays. Like, you know, it is it is quintessentially old boys stuff. It looks like a cosy old power network. And it just reeks of like the kind of old Celtic tiger days like that we thought we'd left behind. And the very fact that they thought they could do it, they thought they could run this risk and presume they'd get away with it. It, it speaks to an incredible sense of entitlement to power, you know, like that they can just take it for granted that they have these positions of power and privilege. Yeah, ab- you know, absolutely. Um, I'm, is, is, uh, I totally agree. And it is, it is significant that this was a golf dinner. You know, like golf is not like normal sports. It has all these <laughs> connotations. And, you know, in particular, like it, like you said, it has this reputation for being exclusionary and for being conspicuously tailored, you know, around a middle class participation. It's like a form of conspicuous consumption. It's a form of like participating in a kind of um, a middle class lifestyle. Um, so this like, a rock this golf society like that begs all sorts of questions like why on earth does it exist in the first place i i would love to know whether yeah (laughs) oh god (laughs) i would love to know how much money has has public money gone into it or or what's going on um and and if so can we all join you know um (laughs) uh, like why in the middle of a global pandemic where by the way most sports events have been cancelled um did anyone think it appropriate to even use this as an excuse of an event um what on earth are all these senior figures getting up to at dinners like this like is it as bad as it looks or is uh, uh, is it totally innocent and like like you know how long have they been doing this and you know if they are are also willing to flout the guidelines that they themselves imposed on the Irish people, what other rules do they believe that they're exempt for? What other rules have they been breaking? Maybe they should give us a list of the stuff that doesn't apply to them. You know, like, <laughs> uh, like you know, um, like, do they have to wear a mask? I don't know, because, like, who knows? Uh, but there, there is also a wider issue of, you know, political privilege um, that interplays with this, like you said. Um, and that brings us to a parallel question about politicians who may cross international borders um, as well um, without having to respect the normal quarantine procedures. Now, Naomi, you've been doing some reporting on politicians who have been commuting back and forth to Brussels in particular. So uh, can you tell us what you found out about that? Yes, I can. I can. And like, just to be clear, this is nothing on the scale of the feckin' golf dinner. But yes, I've been (laughs) reporting on the MEPs and indeed the Taoiseach and his team who've been going back and forth from Brussels to Dublin and so on during their political work. Now, there's an argument that this work is essential and therefore these people should be allowed to travel and also be exempted from the requirement that applies to everybody right now to quarantine for two weeks on entering the Republic from overseas unless you're coming from a very short handful of countries on the green list, which Belgium has, by the way, never been on. 
Um, mm. So, yeah, I looked into it. I surveyed all the MEPs to find out what they would be, be doing. Uh, some MEPs have taken it all extremely seriously. They've just been basically working from their home in Ireland throughout the pandemic. They haven't traveled at all. Um, but other politicians have been commuting, basically, between Ireland and Brussels, like uh, Mairead McGuinness, who's the vice president of the European Parliament, and also Billy Kelleher of Fianna Fáil. And we know that Billy Kelleher broke quarantine requirements because he visited Parliament when he came back from Brussels without quarantining and he had to publicly apologise for that. Um, now, also, the, the Taoiseach did also skip quarantine when he came back from the negotiations in the European Council because he left Brussels that morning and then he went straight into the doll later to take uh, leaders' questions. Um, and I, I contacted his team about it to be like, what about, you know, what are the rules here? And they basically sent me back a quote from the chief medical officer saying that the Taoiseach was on important national business, which, fine, okay, may, that's as maybe, but, like, why why is there not an exemption then, like, written into the rules that are presented to the public? Like, if you go mm. and look up the rules regarding quarantine, it doesn't say the Taoiseach can go to Brussels and back if it's important national business. Um, it's actually really, really specific. There's just a few exemptions, which are mostly, like, airline staff, and truck drivers, and it explicitly says everybody else has to follow this. So if the Taoiseach is exempt, my view is it needs to be written clearly in the rules that everyone can see. Because if you mm. do it by an ad hoc exemption, by just getting like a pass note from the, the chief medical officer, the precedent that you're setting there is that if you're important enough, you can be exempt from the rules. And mm. that is exactly what politicians seem to believe. That is exactly what the culture seems to be looking at this golf dinner. And in fact, it's exactly the argument that's now being used to defend Phil Hogan because he's EU commissioner in charge of trade. He's an important figure in the background of the Brexit negotiations. And it's a really you know, important moment for Ireland right now with the negotiations. The argument that's being made is he shouldn't resign. That shouldn't even be a question because it's just too important. But there's a problem with that logic. You know, it's fundamentally undemocratic. You know, if you're important, then the rules don't apply for you. And particularly when it comes to rules that are about stopping the spread of a virus, like the virus doesn't care if you're on important business. <laughs> like, And yeah. in fact, if you're meeting in big golf dinners or conferences in Brussels or wherever with people who have also traveled from all over the place, then arguably you need to be more careful than everybody else. Like, um, like surely that represents a greater risk. And likewise, if your job is so fundamentally important that we, we can't, you know, you can't miss a day, you can't stay inside for a day and you need to go about your business, well, surely you should take additional precautions then so that you're not struck down by the virus and lost to your work at this vital time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so I mean, fair to say that there are huge upsets uh, going on right now with this. <laughs> and it's, it's, like, ongoing... it's like everybody in the country has yeah. these rants that they want to get off their chest. Like everyone has <laughs> yeah. like a slightly different angle that they want to write rant about, you know, but like yeah. everyone is annoyed about it. Uh, by the way, uh, guys, if, if you want to participate in the discussion, you can find us on Twitter and on Facebook and leave your comment what you think about all of that. Um, but Naomi, we should turn now to look at uh, one issue that has been surprisingly absent uh, from debates about these health restrictions uh, in recent months, um, but which could have absolutely revolutionary consequences uh, for Ireland's political and economic landscape. 
and that is, of course, the issue of halted migration. Uh, Ireland, as we mentioned, has the greatest percentage of its population living outside the state in any country in the OECD. An amazing one in six Irish citizens live somewhere else abroad. Uh, so that is more than 16% of the entire population um, that could, or the entire uh, citizen population, that could be profoundly and perhaps irrevocably affected by structural changes to travel norms. Uh, the same goes for the resident population in Ireland who are of migrant background from elsewhere. Right, so this can have absolutely massive consequences, um, as we'll see. But oddly enough, the public debate actually around the travel restrictions in Ireland, from my point of view, has been almost totally focused on people's holidays. Mm. It's like, oh, quarantine, but what about if I want to go on holiday? Um, like that has been, I like, I, I would, I would include the media and in my criticism here in saying that there's been like an, an exaggerated focus on holidays, which is a nice thing, but I don't think it represents the interests of the full citizenry. Like, doesn't reflect the reality that one in six Irish citizens lives outside the state, right? Mm. And they're not mm. able to travel home. Like, what do, that has all kinds of consequences for people. So just to be clear, it's not a criticism of the restrictions, actually, or the advice against travel, or the requirement to, to quarantine. But what I'm what I do want is I want the debate to be grounded in the reality of this, the actual effect of these things on people's lives, which is really profound. Like it's a massive change for our whole society and how our whole nation has been working up till now. Firstly, just to recap what the situation in Ireland is right now when it comes to these rules, Ireland chose not to join the rest of the EU in banning travel from outside the EU and broadly allowing travel within the EU. Instead, it put in place a system where everyone, whether in, uh, in or out of the EU, has to quarantine for two weeks when they come into Ireland. Now, the only exceptions uh, for that are those travelling from a very, very short um, so-called green list of countries um, from which travel is considered safe. Uh, that green list doesn't include the UK, it doesn't include the US um, or Brussels or any of the countries where really most Irish people living abroad are. Uh, the only countries considered safe at the moment are Estonia, Finland, Greece, Greenland, Hungary, Italy, Latvia, Lithuania, Norway and Slovakia. But if you're coming from anywhere else at all, then you have to quarantine for two weeks. By the way, this also um, excludes Northern Ireland. There's no need for quarantining if you're coming from Northern Ireland, just from the island of Britain. Um, we asked listeners to get in touch with their stories of being unable to travel to Ireland. So let's hear uh, some of those stories now. Um, my name is Quiva and I'm recording this from England, where I've lived for the past six years. I'm specifically, I guess, trying to tell the story of how coronavirus has impacted me. Um, in many ways, I've been very lucky. I've been able to work from home. Uh, I haven't, you know, I haven't gotten sick. Nobody in my family has gotten sick. Touch wood, thank God, so far. Um, but it's still been really hard to be away from family uh, for such a long time and without a clear idea of when I'll be able to go back home. For example, uh, it was my dad's 80th birthday on the 21st of July and uh, we had a whole celebration for him in Glendalough. So, you know, all nice and outdoors and socially distant um, and, a, and a meal there as well. But unfortunately, I couldn't go there um, because of the quarantine and because I didn't want to break the rules and, and put anyone at risk. 
myself and my sister who lives in London had actually hatched a plan that would allow us to fly over there, get a rental car, drive straight down to Glendalough, see everyone, get back in the rental car and back over same day to sort of like skirt around the quarantine rules. But I think, you know, ultimately we decided as nice as that would be for us, it wasn't really in the spirit of the whole trying to be safe and trying to keep others safe. Uh, so so we ended up not doing it. Um, but yeah, it's it's been very hard, particularly not knowing when I will be able to go home and, and when I will next be home. You know, I was last home in uh, January for my niece's 18th birthday and I don't know when I'll get home next, but, you know, I would have been home two or three times usually at this stage uh, for a family reunion we have every summer in Wexford. Um, we're from Dublin, but we go down to Wexford in the summer, all as many of the siblings as we can get and the niece and nephews and in-laws. But obviously that was postponed this year or cancelled. And then for my dad's 80th, I would have loved to have been there. A lot of my friends who are based in the UK have actually travelled home in the earlier part of lockdown and, you know, quarantined upon arrival and are now with their parents. And I, I guess for me, that's been a bit of a difficult choice because the most obvious place for me to go back home and the place with most space is my parents' house. But they're both cocooning, so I wouldn't want to increase the risk on them or 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 the depend on them you know they're they're getting on in age themselves or I could go and stay with uh, a sibling but you know I they're all wonderful and I know they'd be so kind to me but it it's a bit hard being 30 and being you know a complete burden on your sisters and brothers particularly as with the rules of quarantine I'd be you know well I'd be putting them at risk and and I'd also be requiring them to cook all my meals and to you know keep the bathroom clean and all that and it would just it would just be a lot to ask I think and uh and I have to be mindful about my work here and 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 when I'll be asked to come back into the office I'm kind of you know keeping an eye out on the quarantine restrictions and whether they'll lessen in any way because you know the second they're let they lessen I'll be over there like a shot uh, I would it would be wonderful you know just to get over it's it, it's such a simple thing but to see my niece and nephews to see my sisters and brothers to see my parents yeah I'd, I'd love I'd love to be able to go back and you know hopefully soon but sure making plans for Christmas in England just in case. Now under the current restrictions technically it is possible for anyone to come home to Ireland if they can manage to quarantine for 14 days um, but this is easier said than done if you think about it it's just not feasible for most people. Um, firstly of course you have to find the time away from work obviously and to allow for those 14 days which is a feat for most people in on and of itself uh, but secondly then many countries where people will be returning to after they come back from Ireland will also have quarantine restrictions of 14 days when they get back so that means that if you want to see your family for just one or two days that might mean a full month of um, isolation right and then you know you have to have somewhere to quarantine right mm. so 
even if you return and you say, well, I'm, I'm going to lock myself in my old childhood bedroom for two weeks. Mm. Well, you it depends on you having an access to a toilet that no one else uses and mm. also having someone who can bring you food three times a day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's all kinds of variables. Um, and it's not always to do with um, socioeconomic variables either. There can just all be all random things, you know, can get in the way of this. Um, and of course, there are general anxieties about accidentally spreading the disease anyway. Um, the people that we are most desperate to see at the moment are usually those who we want to protect the most from infection. Uh, so for many people, even with the preventative measures of quarantine, they just don't want to take the risk. Hiya, my name's Seamus. I'm speaking to you here from Cardiff in Wales. And as you could probably guess by the accent, I'm not from Cardiff or Wales. I'm from Tyrone originally. Um, I moved to Cardiff about three years ago to study computer science. And so I've been here off and on basically for the last three years. And so into my third year now, it's, it's what we call a placement year. So the idea is that you take a year out from studying, you go and get a job in a company as a software engineer, and that will then set you up for when you graduate. And that's been quite good. And even with a job, um, I've been back and forth home quite a bit. Obviously, as a student, you know, you, you come home for Christmas, you come home for Halloween or whatever. And so I've been back and forth as often as I can. Um, but obviously, when the pandemic hit, that all stopped. And so I actually haven't been home now since January time. It's coming, I think it's about seven months since, I, since I've been home, which is the longest I've been away at all. And I'm only 22. So, you know, that's a significant portion of my adult life, basically, that I've been away from home now and haven't seen anybody. I was actually supposed to go home at Easter time, um, which is about when everything shut down. And uh, then again at the end of June. So I had two sets of flights cancelled. But it was actually not the travel restrictions themselves themselves that caused uh, me to not be able to go home. It was kind of a combination of about four different problems that all sort of converged in this really interesting, complicated way. So um, basically the, the organisation that I work for means that I'm actually not allowed to take my laptop, my work laptop across international boundaries. There was also the Fly B problems where basically they'd cancelled a bunch of flights because there was sort of rumours around their financial status, basically. And so they'd cancelled a bunch of flights and laid off a bunch of staff and things. So the actual route from Cardiff Airport to Belfast was cancelled. One of those That was one of the axe routes. And so that meant that Basically, I couldn't fly from Cardiff to Belfast. I would have to have flown into Dublin, which wasn't possible with my work laptop because there was sensitive information on the laptop, wasn't allowed to take it across an international boundary. So that, that was great. And because I've got a job as well, I can't actually take extra time off. I've only got a certain amount of time off that I'm allowed to take, you know, as jobs work. And so I essentially then had to say, no, you know what, I'm just going to stay in Cardiff and finish out my placement year because there's no real chance of me getting home because I don't want to get stranded. Um, and so, yeah, it was this really interesting sort of convergence of um, global politics, company policy, uh, airlines going under and um, a obviously a global pandemic that has kind of prevented me from going home and seeing my family. So if you remove any piece of that puzzle, it would have been fine. But sort of all together, they've made things really complicated. But um, uh, yeah, and I know that there's a lot, of a lot of people out there with a lot more harrowing stories than me. But I just thought it would be interesting to, to share my story and how I've kind of been stranded here in Cardiff for the last seven months. So this is a massive change to the norm for people, to say the least. Remember that the London to Dublin air route has, until this year, been one of the busiest in the world. Like people really lived their lives 
in particular between Britain and Ireland, like straddling the two countries. But of course, the international links stretch much further than that. Yeah, if you uh, listen to our Home for Christmas episode, of course, you'll already know how deeply important the return of emigrants has become for practically every family in Ireland. After more than a century of mass emigration in practically every generation, you know, that, that leads to a lot of families who, who have loved ones abroad. And when it comes to us, like our generation is often being called the Ryanair generation mm. because, you know, it's very mobile and back and forth. Basically, everyone we know more or less emigrated. Um, but the ease of travel of the era in which we did so basically meant that many people were able to retain like really close links to the country. And our generation also continued to really demonstrate the, its commitment to home and the, like sense of belonging and being part of the nation and you know continued engagement with it. Particularly, for example, of course, during the big moments of political change, like in the referendums that legalized same-sex marriage and abortion. And they were very much about like building an Ireland that we could all belong to. So I'm second generation Irish. I was born in Bedfordshire in the UK and I'm isolating up in Newcastle due to the travel restrictions. Uh, I've not been able to go home since November. I was due to travel in April and this is the longest that I've not been home to Mayo in my 26 years on earth. I've been able to see my parents and my brother once briefly but I've been unable to see any of my aunts or my uncles or my cousins who usually I'm lucky enough to be able to see a few times a year trying to explain to people how much I can miss a place that I've never lived in is incredibly difficult. When the plane is descending into Knock Airport and you see the patchworks of fields and I can physically feel my soul relaxing, it's a place that feels like such an integral part of me. My best memories, my hardest days, weeks of freedom and laughter running through fields, summer evenings as a child with four of my cousins all tangled up in the one bed in my grandmother's house. Not being able to go there feels like being physically detached from a part of myself. It's my grandmother's home, it's my mother's home, and it's my home too. It's not a swipe at the quarantine legislation or anything like that. To me, it all makes perfect sense. But it does mean that I can't really go back right now, and that's a huge interruption to the usual rhythms of my life. And that's particularly frustrating when a lot of the discourse around this is whether or not we need foreign holidays. Obviously, a week in the sun somewhere in southern Europe would be lovely, but we're in the middle of a pandemic. So if that can't happen, it can't happen. Um, Me and my family just want to be able to go home. Hi, Tim and Naomi. It's Jeff Angevine. Remember when I told you in December that I was enjoying my first Christmas season after connecting with my Irish birth family? Well, we're getting on really well. Emails, phone calls, WhatsApp. But we still haven't met. We had big plans, but now they're on hold. Now, I don't blame you for not wanting Americans right now. Who wants to be here? But it has been a wrenching disappointment. Thanks for asking. Bye-bye. So this sense of indefinite disruption to travel, it represents a really big change, you know, not just in practical terms, but psychologically and culturally and, as we've seen, even politically. I spoke to Dr. Mark Scully of Mary Immaculate College in Limerick, who studies Irish migration and diaspora. This does bring to the fore a cultural phenomenon that has come to characterise Irish emigration for the last few generations. Yeah, and in a way, it's kind of gone under the radar. We didn't notice things becoming like this. But Dr. Mark Scully um, defines it well. He calls the phenomenon transnational identity. 
And what he's talking about there is he, living your life in, to some, in some dimension between two places. So that can manifest in loads of different ways. You know, maybe for, uh, as a very basic example, just the simple knowledge, these, the, the awareness that you can return home relatively easily if there is some kind of emergency or if you need to, you can, you know, hop on a flight somehow. Or it could just be the fact of listening to the Irish radio or, you know, following the Irish news, even though you haven't lived there for years. Or for some, it might be literally commuting back and forth um, on a regular basis, as is the case with loads of um, Irish people living in Britain in particular. Um, these things, you know, are relatively new in terms of the Irish emigrant experience. Uh, living abroad, as any emigrant knows, can be hugely alienating for both the emigrant and those that they leave behind. But the relative ease of travel available for the last 20 or 30 years, you know, that's really transformed that experience. And it's really fostered this sense of transnationality. Um, Mark Scully also spoke to us about what the effect of this sudden disruption to travel may have on people's lives, so let's take a listen to him now. So how has this pandemic and sudden massive disruption to the international ease of travel which we have had, how has this landed like onto this situation that Ireland has with this diaspora, this practice of constant immigration and, and re-immigration? I expect it's, it's like a nuclear bomb going off. Yeah, you know, the, I've tried to think of a parallel, particularly in the lives of those who have migrated. And I think as something suddenly changing, I think the nearest parallel for particularly the Irish in Britain is the, the start of the Troubles. Now, it's, it's, not a, it's not a perfect parallel in, in many ways, but in terms of your everyday life, the way in which you relate to the country you're from changes more or less overnight in, in the way you could live your everyday life as an Irish migrant. I think the more recent generation will see their lives as migrants as pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. The form of transnationalism, I guess, that has been taken, certainly in the last 10 or 20 years, which has been predicated on the notion that you can get home easily. That, that was there as a safety valve, the, the flight home that you was accessible and affordable. Transnationalism here defined as being able to live your life in, in two countries simultaneously. Some level of there is a bit of you here and there's a bit of you there. And that's always been something of a characteristic of the Irish in Britain, simply because Britain is the closest place it is in Ireland. But I guess more recently, that's become a lot more accessible to a lot more Irish migrants because flights have got so much cheaper and there are so many more of them. So you build up, I think, a lifestyle and a support network and a sense of identity that is reliant of, as at least part of it, regular trips home. So there's a way of life there that has suddenly stopped. And one of the things that does occur to me is what's been left stranded. You suddenly have to make a snap decision about which, which part of your life do you leave behind? Which country are you going to stay in? And which part of your life are you going to leave behind? I mean, I know... Certainly, if this had happened three years ago, when I was shuffling back and forth, I would have suddenly had to make the decision of, right, do I quit my job or do I resign myself to not seeing my wife and son for six months? And I can only imagine there are people who, who have had to make that decision. So it might be all kinds of reasons why you might be going back and forth. So, th so there's that end of the spectrum where half your life is suddenly cut off from you. But then there's also the probably a lot more common migrants who would go back relatively regularly, wouldn't be back every week or anything like that, but would certainly be back a few times a year. I would always have felt they could get home if they needed to, you know, or they could get home and then come back quickly if they needed to. 
And for that to have gone, when it is quite integral to the life and the identity you've built up for yourself, and maybe where a lot of your support network is still in Ireland. And, and we should say, of course, this equally applies to people of a migrant background in Ireland who might want to, who might have been regularly returning to their own countries of origin, wherever those may be. To not be able to do that has quite profound psychological implications and the way you see yourself and the way you see your own position as a migrant and the way you see your support structures, if your support structures are most, if the support structures you rely on are mostly in Ireland, suddenly you're, you're cut off from them. What, what does that do? What are the implications of that? If, you, if the defining characteristic of a generation is mobility, and that mobility suddenly goes, then what happens next? Now, something that Mark pointed out as well is the potential psychological impact on emigrants of not just being prevented from traveling back uh, home, but also maybe people not wanting you back. Yeah, of course. Um, people on the island are seriously worried about the potential of people bringing in the virus through travel, naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, so that basically means that no longer are this one-sixth of Irish citizens sort of stranded away from their families they're also kind of aware that they're supposed to stay away if at all possible and Mm. people might be quite opposed to them coming back you know and it goes both ways with those inside the country who need to see people outside also being impacted so here's the fascinating thing right it's possible that the current political situation in Ireland and this massive disruption to travel may kind of come together in a dramatic way because for the first time in history really the unhappy young people of Ireland may not be able to leave. Yeah right so successive governments in Ireland have kind of come to rely on the tradition of mass emigration during times of economic difficulty. Um, Every young person who leaves during periods of mass unemployment for instance represents one less jobless resident who might otherwise be drawing social welfare from the state or looking for social housing that hasn't been built yet. Instead governments have often hoped that emigrants success abroad will eventually lead to financial return uh, in Ireland uh, down the line. Now, however, as we head into another major major global recession on the back of this pandemic, not to mention the yet unknown collateral damage of Brexit, which is coming fast down the line too, um, this traditional wave of emigration may not be possible um, at all when it's needed the most. And that has put the country into an unprecedented scenario situation here. Right. It could have major political consequences. So like we've just come out of an election in which a massive youth vote almost delivered a Sinn Féin government, mm. like out of anger at the old parties and policies of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. So what happens now that all the young people can't leave and mm. they have to stay there? What happens now that pressure valve is switched off? I don't think we have a historical precedent for this, of a recession where people can't leave the country. Particularly, I guess, among more politically progressive political left in in Ireland, there's sometimes been a undercurrent of we could change things if people didn't emigrate. You know, if we had lots and lots of young people in the country who were there agitating for change, then things could actually change. But instead, people emigrate. And, and I wonder whether that will start to come into the conversation a little bit more. In a way, it's a, it's a test case because the, the trope has always been that uh, of Ireland being a relatively conservative country because the people, the younger generations who might affect change have, have left through emigration. So now we have a, uh, almost a, 
almost a laboratory perfect condition where what would happen in a scenario where young people who could who are supposed to be the ones to affect change in a recession are not able to leave. So I guess if you were a political scientist from seeing Ireland for the next few years would be a very interesting test case of, okay, what, what happens when this hypothesis scenario actually comes about? By the way, you can catch our full discussion with Mark Scully, which was fascinating, over on our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport. We've published the full interview in two separate posts there, so go ahead and check it out. So, Naomi, what is going to happen when, as Mark mentioned yeah. there, this laboratory experiment, you know, comes to fruition? Like, fascinatingly, we've seen that some of the biggest, the most radical changes in Irish history have almost always occurred when a generation of young people, for one reason or another, uh, don't undertake that traditional emigration pattern and instead remain in the country. And what's even more striking is that, as we saw in the last general election, traditional political parties just don't seem to be equipped to deal with a mobilised, young and determined voting population. They don't know what they're thinking. They don't know how to manipulate them. They're not very good <laughs> at it, it seems. You know, like they're, they're dealing with this uh, un unknown beast. Um, so, like, as, as it stands, it could be years and years before we get back to the kind of easy movement that once allowed, you know, for regular mass immigration. Um, so what could that heady recipe have in store for Ireland's political landscape? Honestly, I mean, as it stands right now, it looks like, the days of this government could be numbered. Like, it just hasn't managed to catch a break. Yeah. So you have to ask yourself, are they able to keep the show on the road? Are they able to keep it together? And then that raises the question, okay, are we going to face an election, a pandemic election before long? <laughs> um, you know, like, before, it, is it just a matter of time before the trials and tribulations of the government just, like, go out of control and, you know, falls apart? Like, having said that, though, like, the last government was also fragile and also had mm -hmm. um, problems and fallouts, but yet it sort of staggered on for way longer than anyone thought possible. Mm. And, like, look at the circumstances of this pandemic. There's They 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 have lots of reasons to say, we've just got to keep this show on the road, you know. Um, we've just got to see out this Brexit thing. We've got to get the pandemic under control and just, like, stick together. And they may well do that. And also, they're probably driven by the fear of just how many Sinn Féin politicians could be elected if a vote was called, like, now, mm -hmm. you know. So that that could keep the government holding on. Um, but like I said, you know, there were already, before before this ridiculous golf gate, there was already this huge risk of this government fueling further resentment among the electorate and particularly among the younger voters. And the un I think I warned in our in our analysis episode about the new Irish government that the only way they could really avoid that was to actually fix the big problems that there are, like particularly in housing. And instead, obviously, all of their bandwidth is is taken up with this pandemic. Mm -hmm. And like it's worth noting that like Ireland isn't unique in this. Pandemics are really destabilizing. Like they're destabilizing. They're historically destabilizing. They they shape eras they really change the world <laughs> like mm. in the past this has happened and we just don't know how this one is going to change the world we it, it's already being talked about as you know heralding the end of the american century and the start of the chinese century uh, which of course was a trend that was happening anyway but perhaps is being accelerated and of course ireland is a, is you know a much smaller fry in this whole thing but yeah, a, a, the pandemic could totally be the end of our old political system. 
Wow, well, I, I mean, you know, you don't need to be a historian to know that moments like this, when huge issues all begin to converge, can signal incredibly significant turning points. But at the same time, the global instability that you just mentioned brought on by the pandemic um, has rekindled a certain yearning for normality and for the status quo and just back to everyday life, which we definitely saw in the first stages of lockdown, where there was this sudden renewed surge of support for the then acting Taoiseach, uh, Leo Varadkar. So I think it's fair to say that people won't be launching into radical change lightly. And really, this moment is the government's, you know, whether to seize it or to let it out of their grasp. So what they do over the next few weeks and months is going to be so, so interesting. Yeah, and so important. And so on that note, that's all for, from us. And don't forget to check out the full interview with Dr. Mark Scully, which was so fascinating over on our Patreon page. By the way, if you're someone who doesn't like monthly payments mm-hmm. um, and doesn't like the idea of signing up for monthly payment, uh, we have good news for you. We've yeah. just introduced a brand new system where you only have to pay once a year. Uh, so it's just one payment and you get an access to all of our bonus content uh, for the whole year. And also, if you do that, you get a 10% discount. So mm. it's actually even cheaper than it ever was. And we'll be we'll keep that, de- that 10% discount for a limited time only. If you go up and sign up, uh, you'll get it. And that will mean you can, you can uh, donate anything you feel is appropriate to keep this uh, podcast going upwards of just over $10 a year. Right, yeah, and we appreciate absolutely everything. And even if you uh, don't want to sign up as a patron, you can really help the podcast out by sharing this episode or others on social media or with your friends and family if you liked it. It really helps to get us out there and to bring our content to new listeners. So for now, thank you so much for listening and a salon to everyone. Salon for now.